nobody gets fired for doing the same thing that they've always done in the past. But trying something new, trying something different is risky for many large organizations who are used to doing things a certain way. And the international development sector is, is certainly one of those. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aid Evolved, a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. My name is Rowena, and I'm hoping in this space to share with you stories of individuals who have built their life and career around how to use technology to address poverty or to improve healthcare for people around the world. My hope is that through sharing the stories of these individuals, their challenges and successes, the risks they've taken and the things that they've learned, I'll be able to help others like you who are hoping to make the world a better place and thinking about using technology to do that. We'll be launching this podcast later this year. However, I couldn't help myself uh, and I'm releasing this teaser episode a little bit early. I'd love to hear what you think about it. In this teaser episode, I'll be speaking with Soraya Vergi of Everyone Mobile. Soraya has 15 years of international business experience, ranging from technology to financial services to social impact, including seven years with Everyone Mobile. She's worked in countries across Africa, And what I really enjoyed about my conversation with her was the story she had about launching into the unknown, from a child of 13 in Kenya to the Bank of Barclays in London, and finally how she ended up at Everyone Mobile. She talks about how she was able to move from the corporate to the nonprofit space, and how she's able to leverage her experience to build partnerships between the public sector and the private sector. For example, working with Unilever to access the network of informal shopkeepers across Kenya. If you like what you hear, you can find out more at our website, aidevolved.com. You'll be able to download show notes, get updates, subscribe to the podcast, and get in touch with me if you have any feedback or comments about the episode. And with that, let's switch over and hear from Soraya. Welcome, Soraya. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, Thanks, Rowena. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Just to get us started, could you tell us a little bit about Everyone Mobile and your work with them? Yeah, Everyone Mobile is a very, very exciting company that sits squarely at the intersection of business and social impact and brings in the technology angle as well, which for me, the kind of the three components were very, very exciting. The company uses the power of mobile device. So the device that people naturally already have access to in the palm of their hands, whether that's a basic feature phone or if it's a more advanced smartphone, and uses that technology in order to deliver social change. So whether that's improvements in people's uh, economic livelihoods, um, so township shopkeepers, for example, or if it's around improvements in health, so say with uh, young adolescents or pregnant women, um, the organization is really focused on the use of uh, digital technology to change behavior in order to improve people's lives. It's a very, very exciting organization. And um, also another interesting angle, as I mentioned at the beginning, is that it sits at the intersection of business and impact. At the core, it's about delivering impact. It is also building a commercial business in, in the process. That's great to hear. And I think that's one aspect that we'd we'd love to dig in a little bit deeper is that business side of the financial sustainability and of the adoption and uptake of these interventions that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, Since I know in this podcast, we kind of range over government and public sector interventions and such. Let's wind things, wind the clock back a little bit and, and talk about how did you end up here? You know, did you always imagine that you'd be working in this in this particular niche? Um, what, what inspired you to get involved in this particular way of 
trying to change the world? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, everyone's life journey takes them in such different directions and and mine is no different. Mm -hmm. You know, 15 years ago, I probably couldn't have imagined that I would be doing what I'm doing, but um, I wouldn't want to rewrite uh, history um, at all. I'm very, very pleased to be where mm -hmm. I am. Um, I my, my journey started, um, I, you know, I grew up in Kenya. And when I was 13, our family moved to Canada. And from that age, I was always very, very interested in someday returning to the continent um, and also uh, someday being able to participate in, um, in economic and health improvements um, on the continent. And, and my, my life journey, you know, since, since the age of 13 always allowed me to put one toe in the water every once in a while. Um, but um, it was only until very recently that I was able to fully immerse myself in, in, into, into the social impact space. Um, I, I did some work with the Aga Khan Agency for Microfinance. I did some work with the Aga Khan Hospital Services in Tanzania. But, um, but somehow my, my, my life trajectory kind of took, took me more into technology, particularly at the time of um, the dot-com boom and then subsequent bust. And I worked in America uh, for uh, technology companies doing software implementations. Uh, and I moved into the business side, which is which is where I enjoyed. Um, I joined the interaction much more with clients rather than with coding. Uh, and, and from there, moved into product management in technology companies. So for many years, I was crossing a number of sectors, um, but working on the technology side. And then in 2006, uh, I decided to eject from my North American existence and move to uh, to the UK to do my master's. So I did. I like your word, eject, <laughs> there, kind of like launching yourself from a plane or something. It, it really, it, it felt like I was hitting the big red eject button and and giving myself <laughs> the opportunity to, oh boy, yeah, to start a clean slate and uh, and start a new a new trajectory in uh, new sectors in new countries um, with a new focus. Just to give myself some variety and some and some growth, um, hmm. and and after my after I finished my my business degree in the UK, I stayed in London, and uh, and ended up working in financial services, which was really not what I was expecting. But there I was, <laughs> and uh, and my 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 first um, role in uh, at Barclays in the retail bank was to look at um, the uh, the African footprint for for Barclays and how we could support the growth trajectory of the African markets. So that sort of brought me back to, to Africa and an interest in microfinance and financial education for Africa. And so th that was sort of the reigniting of my, um, my longing to return to the continent and, uh, and work in that space. That sounds quite fortuitous. <laughs> and there's something notable even about an organization like Barclays, which is financially motivated to understand, uh, you know, what the the opportunity that exists in the African market, and how that is also relevant uh, for for you in charting out your your path and your service mm -hmm. to the continent. Exactly, exactly. And uh, and and from there, you know, after I left Barclays in 2013, I had the opportunity to move to South Africa. And on arrival here, I had uh, I had no job and didn't know anybody, and I made it. Um, a really exciting space and opportunity to again um, switch to another sector, but really leverage the technology background that I had, uh, the business degree and commercial competency that I had uh, to marry those two elements with then my long-standing interest and desire to move into the social impact space. 
And uh, as luck would have it, I came across Everyone Mobile, um, which, as I described at the very beginning, was at the intersection of business and social impact and uh, and had a very strong technology component to it. So um, I jumped at the opportunity, um, even though I didn't nice. know anything about the space and I didn't had never worked in international development, but I thought uh, it's a risk worth taking. Good to hear. And I'm, I'm sensing a bit of a, of a trend here. You know, at first you were in the States and then got ejected <laughs> to London. <laughs> and then you had your life set up in London, working comfortably at a, at a big bank and then got ejected into South Africa again. So you seem to have a, a history of landing on your feet somehow. Somehow, yeah. And, um, and, and in many cases, these ejections have been voluntary or self-imposed, which I think is the most exciting way. You know, it's Mm. very easy sometimes to just stay in the environment that you're in because it's easy, it's safe, it's, it's known, it's comfortable. But um, but the growth happens when things are hard, and um, and and absolutely, and that I think this is where I've I've really focused, um, especially recently. You know, there is. uh, I'm, I'm also a big subscriber of Stoic philosophy. Um, Rowena, you and I have spoken about this before. <clears throat> and Stoic philosophy talks about the obstacle being the way and seeing mm. um, seeing opportunity in the challenges that you're confronted with. So I'm a big believer yeah. in that. Um, and, I, and I feel as I reflect on my, on my past that uh, <laughs> the biggest challenges that I've had have really served as the biggest opportunities for my personal and professional growth. And I think that's that's a really key point um, that that I draw from your story. Um, there's something like I know, you know, I know many people. I'm sure anyone in this space does who end up in a country one way or the other, and then you know, it, it's it's hard to to get started, to make the connections, to find the right opportunity for others who who might not have the same courage <laughs> to take the the risks that you did, leaping into new industries. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice? What got you through? to the point where you you found the opportunities that you were seeking? Do you know, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. I think, um, I think I would probably, uh, I would probably say something that I've learned about recently, as opposed to how I've approached it in the past. And, <laughs> and, um, and we're learning all the time. Yeah, learning all the time. And, and again, this particular example is, is also um, kind of, it, it, it's got its root in Stoic philosophy as well. And that is that, while people are very comfortable and typically think about setting goals for themselves, um, you know, an interesting way to think about things is actually uh, not goal setting, but fear setting. And and, huh. and when you are confronted with an opportunity or a challenge, um, you know, for example, moving to another country, taking on a new job, uh, you know, there's an opportunity to think about what are the fears that you have around being successful at that new thing. And actually sitting with a piece of paper and a pen and listing out the fears and the concerns that you have that may, you think, hinder you from being successful. And just that exercise of putting down your your fears and challenges and your concerns is, you know, that in itself helps you to just wipe away some of the things that are actually not genuine fears or that can be removed pretty quickly. But once you have that list, then the next thing would be to say, well, how do I mitigate some of those risks or concerns? Um, so, for example, you know, you're moving to a brand new country, you don't know anybody, um, you're nervous, you're concerned that you know it's going to take you a long time socially to land on your feet. Well, let's say for argument's sake, you have a really strong interest in running or in hiking. Then one of the things you could do to mitigate that social concern would be, 
you know, I'm going to find hiking groups, I'm going to find running groups, um, I'm going to find technology groups that because I'm interested in technology, whatever it might be. And actually doing that work before you move to the next country so that that fear can never be realized or actualized because you've already prepared and you've found a way out of it. So there's some Mm -hmm. fears you can mitigate and there's others that you, you can't, right? And if you can't find ways to mitigate the fears or the concerns, then then it's about thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen if that thing that I'm scared about actually does materialize? And uh, and just noting out what the worst thing could be means that you're already starting to think about uh, what it could be. And, um, and that also yeah. gives you a lot of strength because you realize actually it's not that bad. <laughs> and so, so I, you know, I take quite a bit a practical um, approach now to some of the some of the new challenges that are presented in my life, and and I think fear setting is a really important way to really recognize that actually you're a lot stronger than you than you give yourself credit for, and sometimes feel a feeling of lack of self confidence is actually not lack of self confidence. It's just um, that you haven't you haven't addressed your fears head on, and and I think there's mm. there's strength in um, confronting fear head on. <laughs> There's so many things in that exercise that you're talking about that resonate with me. One, I'm definitely one of those goal setters that you're talking about, you know, definitely have that master plan. Here's the three things. Here's the year timeline, et cetera, et cetera. I like that you're talking about taking those, those fears and, and naming them, you know, in a way it it appeals to my, my project manager mentality, you know, like it's all about knowing the risks, understanding them, pulling them apart and and tackling them all. Um, and, And the last thing it reminds me of is, Something I guess in in my practice that I, I get from from meditation, which is something about naming the monster in the closet, makes it fade away. Exactly. <laughs> you know, makes it like, oh yeah, like if if I if I you know don't make any money this year, that'll be fine. Like I can that'll like I can do that. Exactly. <laughs> and maybe it's worth it. Maybe the upside is is worth uh, the downside of it all. Exactly. So. Fascinating. Wow. So <laughs> having taken that that step where you found everyone mobile and you and you stepped into the sector and you hadn't worked um, in in the development space or in the social sector before, what were those first few years like? I'm, I'm sure they must have been quite different from Barclays and some of the other experiences you had. Oh, completely different. Uh, so completely different. I mean, I, you know, at Barclays, you know, everybody would rock up wearing a blue suit or a gray suit and... It was all very, um, you know, all very corporate and uh, lots of bureaucracy as big companies have, you know. And um, and then I rocked up to the smaller kind of family feeling type of company where, you know, I reported directly to the CEO. So, again, that just changes your the, the dynamic and, the, and, the, and your interaction instantly. Um, but also the yeah. environment was very relaxed. It was a small company. You know, you you wear whatever you want. Um, you're, you've got direct mm-hmm. access to whomever you, you, you want to be with. And everything that you do has an impact on the bottom line of the company, which when you work in a big organization, you, you just feel very much like you're a cog in the wheel. And to not feel like mm-hmm. that, you really have to... Uh, you really have to push yourself to be, um, you know, an incredible game changer and to stand out in a company of 40, 50,000 people. Um, Whereas when you're in a small company, the the pressure is much, much higher because 
you, there's visibility on everything that you do or don't do, everything that you deliver yeah. or don't deliver. Um, your personal character and style also has a big influence on the culture, um, you know, and and the working environment, huh. which uh, you know when you work in a larger company, the culture is already set, right? Whereas in a smaller company, it feels like every individual um, has the opportunity to help shape that slightly. So the so the kind of the working environments and the cultures and the attitudes and perspectives were completely and totally different. And, and now that I've had a taste of, you know, the, the kind of smaller company startup kind of environment, um, you know, the, you know, the, the impact that each individual can have, I, I can't imagine ever going back to a life in corporate ever again. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's bureaucracy in all, all sorts of different organizations, even, even the small ones. Um, but I, I, I hear you with the, Something about the agility and the responsiveness of, of small companies or small organizations is is quite appealing. So on the topic of culture, I'd love to hear how you believe you shaped the culture in those early years. When I when I think about the culture of the organization I joined seven years ago, it was very, very early stages company. The you know, when you're when you are a very early stages company, the challenge actually is that you have a vision for what you want your company to achieve and you pursue that, that vision. And, you know, the amazing thing about strong leadership is, and, and I saw this in, in our CEO is that you try to push on as many doors as possible and you see which one's going to open. Um, and you kind of, you flow with where the opportunity is, where the, um, where the interest is, where you think your products and services match best with the needs of your clients and um, and so there's got to be a lot of flexibility and understanding about kind of the changing direction of an organization as you are a very, very young company trying to find your space in the world. And hmm. culturally, I think with a few people that we had in the organization, there was a lot of nervousness around that because they were not used to this kind of agility, um, you know, with trying to find out who we are as a company. And so one of the things that um, I did very, very early in my in my time at Everyone Mobile was to run an exercise with the organization around what is what does everybody understand the mission of the company to be? What is the vision of the organization? What are the values of the organization? And really trying to bring everybody together on the same page. And what was really clear from running that exercise both in the UK and in South Africa, was that every single person in the company had a very different view about what the company was about, what the company did, <laughs> um, what the company was trying to achieve, what the values of the organization were. And that was really, really eye-opening. Um, and I think this also mm. comes into play when you have um, an organization that is small, um, that is split across multiple ge geographies and time zones that setting kind of uh, or kind of helping to align towards a culture of the company is very difficult because you get these microcultures. So I, I think that, so, so I think a, a big, con big contribution that I made in, um, in kind of the culture was to really help with some of the framing of this context of who we are, what we're trying to achieve, how we're going to get there what the values of the company are. And that was really important because that helped us to also determine what kind of work we would take on and what kind of work we wouldn't because it either did or did not align with the values of the organization. So I think that was a, an important cultural shaping um, that I was able to contribute to. 
Yeah, and they say that being able to set that kind of direction or articulate those values early in the life of a company is the only time you, you can do it. Later, later on, it kind of happens on its own, which is which is always dangerous and leads to a lot of companies drifting away from their values. Exactly. Um, and, and when you're working at a social enterprise, it's particularly important to understand, you know, impact can be hard to 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 measure or to identify and such. Um, and so being able to have that that dialogue in the early stages of the company um, is, is an important part of, uh, I would say, the, the founding mm. story of yeah, and something else I'll, I'll add, which is uh, not really on the on the professional front, but I've always been a relatively good eater, you know. So, so <laughs> I like to eat healthy. And I like to drink healthy. And when I first when I, we can all relate yeah, to when that. I first arrived at work, I was horrified at how many spoonfuls of sugar people were putting in their tea, and the, and and what they were eating. And they would kind of look at me with curiosity when they would see bags of salad and fresh vegetables emerging from the fridge that I insisted <laughs> we buy to keep in the kitchen in the company, and assembling my lunch every day and taking. 10 minutes to sit and eat my lunch outside away from my desk. And, uh, and, hmm. and I, and I'm really happy to say that, you know, seven years later, you, we, we, we ran out of a fridge space and had to get a bigger fridge because many people were bringing in fresh <laughs> food that needed to be prepared. And we had couch and people sit at the couch at lunchtime and, um, and, and so many of the individuals in the organization now either, don't put sugar in their tea or put one spoon and not three. And so that I think has been a really big contributor also. We, we, oh, over the five years, we've had lots of conversations about food. We show each other what we've prepared for lunch. And, and I feel like the office is a healthier space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think there's, there's an aspect of this, this line of work where, you know, we try to shape or improve, you know, the communities and the countries out there, but there's also, I imagine, you know, lives that have been improved, lives that have been saved um, through better lifestyles. <laughs> you know, like there's the, the micro community around us and the, the environment that we work and then the larger, uh, you know, the larger geographies and the larger, the larger globe that we try to serve. And so each one of them counts mm -hmm. exactly. <laughs> um, in our, in our journey to do something good with the time that we mm -hmm. have. Tell me a bit about um, one of like uh, a, a project or a partner or an experience um, that you, that you learned a lot from, like I'm sure, I'm sure over the course of the years that you've been with Everyone Mobile, um, you've picked up a lot about about this sector. Um, what's what's one story that stands out in in your mind where uh, you felt like you you learned a lot through the process? I, I think there's there's one particular example that that certainly stands out for me, um, and that is through um, through relationships that our organization was able to build with Unilever. Um, we were confronted with a very interesting. Uh, opportunity and challenge where um, Unilever basically as a very forward thinking commercial organization that has done away with corporate social responsibility um, departments mm. and looks very much at uh, profit with purpose. So looks at uh, social impact as being core to their business and to their the way that they can actually drive greater commercial value for themselves. Um, they 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 looked at nice. um, some of their value chains. Um, for example, in in Kenya, where we started to work with them, informal retailers, um, which are like the corner shops, they comprised somewhere between sixty and seventy percent of Unilever's business. So traditional, so traditionally, or here in South Africa or in other more developed countries, uh, the formal retail structures really are dominant. 
whereas in a lot of emerging markets, informal retail is the dominant uh, trade form. And so Unilever recognized that there is an opportunity for them to improve the economic livelihoods of the township shopkeepers, support them with financial education, support them with access to working capital so that they can build their corner shops, uh, put more stock on the shelves, expand, etc. Um, and and also to support the health of the bottom of the pyramid consumers who are buying from these shopkeepers. Um, and in so doing, that there would be an opportunity for commercial value for Unilever. You know, the better the better nice. the businesses are um, the, of the township shopkeepers, the more they're able to buy from Unilever. It's a virtuous cycle. And, and there's an opportunity mm-hmm. for Unilever to provide very interesting um, behavior change and education to the consumers at the bottom of the pyramid to put discounts back into their pockets to save the money, then there's value. Um, there's value there also. So they they presented this challenge to us, um, and we had to co- we had to create and design um, essentially a supply and demand uh, ecosystem that would connect the, the 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 corporate Unilever to the shopkeeper who sits in the middle and then to the consumer who sits at the end of that chain and to look at how we can actually support that shopkeeper with financial education, business skills training, and to create a loyalty program between that shopkeeper and their consumers, because the bottom of the pyramid consumers are very price sensitive and will shop around and there's no loyalty. And for them, every shilling or every penny is material. So looking at how to build loyalty programs between the shopkeepers and their and their consumer base, while at the same time making sure that the discounts that Unilever regularly provides that get snapped up by the wholesalers or by the shopkeepers themselves, those discounts traditionally never make their way down to the bottom of the pyramid. Um, and if there is a way for... Um, for those discounts to go to the consumer, then that would be putting you know millions of shillings back into the pockets of bottom of the pyramid consumers that would only contribute to their improved um, health and, and and livelihoods. So, mm, so we confronted with this challenge and this opportunity, we uh, we created and designed a digital ecosystem connecting those three components together: the FMCG, the informal retailer, and the and the consumer. And um, and we presented that with Unilever to Diffid, um, who, you know, we're very grateful that they they funded our program for one year, and then for two years, and then for three years, and then for four years. And and interestingly, in the meanwhile, we were able to build up this program to have six thousand shopkeepers, thirty thousand consumers. We put over four million four million shillings back into the pockets of the bottom of the pyramid consumers. We saw that the, the the top performing shopkeepers increased their annual turnover by twenty five percent. I mean, really material um, impact that we were able to to deliver, and um, and we then also through our relationship with Gates, who also uh, was working closely with Unilever, they were very interested in this program, and we replicated it with. Um, Nigerian context in mind, um, you, you know, working with uh, informal retailers in Nigeria who also sell over-the-counter medicines. So really exciting program. Uh, you know, big learns from there were that there is a, there is an opportunity for uh, uh, technology to become a real driver for creativity to address uh, social problems that are social problems, but they're also corporate problems. I mean, this was. 
This was an opportunity for us to deliver impact and for us to help Unilever drive commercial value. And it feels to me like this is the way the world needs to move, um, is that, you know, going away are the days of corporate social responsibility. Um, But, you know, coming forward are opportunities for private sector organizations to truly get involved in uh, improving health and livelihoods, um, you know, for commercial value. Absolutely. And and I think that's a fascinating case study for, for a few different reasons. One is, is the is the reshaping or the rethinking of of CSR into this profit for profit profit with purpose model um, is is fascinating and I'd love to hear it's like your your experience working with them and because I, I imagine it's a it must be a again I, I have no idea how long Unilever has had this model of operation um, but just getting used to the longer longer time scale returns that a lot of these social interventions can have. And in general, just like managing that, uh, that, that corporate relationship. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that. And and then also on the, on the technology side, um, like what, like to hear more about like the, the specific things that you, that you tried to implement, did they all work the first time or uh, were there things that, uh, that did and did not work uh, on the technology side? Mm. So, I mean, I'll take the, this, the second question first. So they, you know, no, it didn't always work on the technology side. You know, as, <laughs> thank you for setting me up very well for that one. So, you know, the, the thing is, is that um, I, I think a dangerous space for people who work in technology um, to be is that is to think that technology is the silver bullet, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, they, where we have seen um, where we've seen things work best is where there is a very distinct marriage between what happens in the physical space with what happens in the digital space. And digital and technology become uh, complementary to what happens in the face-to-face space. And and particularly depending on the kinds of programs that you're running, in in many cases, especially where there's some sensitivity uh, of the subject matter, um, people want to feel like they can look into the eyes of somebody. Um, and you can't replace that. And in many cases, pen and paper have been dominant and still are for a very good reason. So technology mm. has its place um and um and as you know as as time evolves technology will have a larger and larger place but you know that but the physical space is still a very important one the social interaction space is a very important one and digital can only uh, cannot replace that but can only complement it so much interesting and in this example when you talk about the the physical space you mean like the actual relationship between the the shopkeepers and the beneficiaries and some yeah. of the the face-to-face interactions that exist exactly there? gotcha what is the thing that you tried that might not have worked out <laughs> yeah it, we uh, we experimented a little bit with um with trying to find out if we could get the shopkeepers to participate in uh, digital record keeping, um, you know, and moving people mm. from pen and paper to putting everything onto a onto a device. It's you know, there's a there's a long journey that needs to take place before people feel comfortable doing so. Uh, I, I think there's a there's a lot that we we learned. I think the key thing always for us, and and I think generally is to put the user at the heart of everything that you do. You know, we we had very many examples. You know, even outside of this project. Um, that I've described, where what our client wanted us to do and what the end beneficiary wanted were miles apart. So I'll, I'll give you another example. We we worked on a project that was funded by USAID in Zambia. Um, the project was all about promoting a female condom to young girls uh, and adolescents. Mm. And so the program 
success was dictated by the promotion of this female condom, the interest that people had, their understanding of the condom. And yet, um, when we researched our users, because we always take a human-centered design and a user-centric approach to designing our programs, it was very clear that talking about the female condom was not really going to be the thing that would keep people's energy, keeps pe- keep people's interest, um, get them motivated to engage. What would be more interesting was to talk about all contraception options. And actually, more interesting than that was to actually talk about love, life, sex, and relationships. So we had to flip <laughs> the whole conversation on its head where, on the one hand, we knew what our client was paying us for, but we also knew that we had to modify how we would actually engage with the end beneficiary in order to achieve our client's uh, desires, but in order to best engage the beneficiaries. So we spun the whole thing around and essentially built a digital community talking about love, life, sex, and relationships. And in there, wove in relationships and and sex and all contraception options, and then finally the, the female condom. That's a great example. What, what I like about it is that it... Uh, it sort of ties together user-centered design as well as as well as the need for for humility in our in our interventions. You know, it turns out just like youth and adults all over the world <laughs> love sex and relationships uh, will will catch your eye in a way that uh, like a specific focus on on the female condom uh, does not. That's great to hear that you you were able to to get to that through the user-centered design process. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I'm curious as as someone. Um, I'm, I think we've we've both spent many years working in in digital and social change. Seen some projects go really well, and some projects sort of peter out and fade. Over the years working in this space, did you did you ever have any doubts about this kind of intervention, or whether technology, even as I guess we're just talking about, you know, is technology the answer and such? Do you ever have any doubts about the application of of technology to to social? Issues and yeah, uh, yes, I think this is a really good question, um, Rowena. Um, you know, the I think that the challenge that we had even seven years ago is that as an organization, we knew that this was the space we wanted to occupy, is the use of digital for um, for social impact. The problem when you work in the international development space and in some cases are at the mercy of what the donors are funding, how much money they're putting towards technology. It, you know, it's, it, it was uh, disheartening at the beginning to see that even though there was a lot of recognition that, you know, millions and millions of people globally, even low income, have access to a device, that there wasn't um, the corresponding willingness or budget to support programs or interventions that leveraged those technologies. And it's, it, you know, it certainly feels like we've been on quite an education journey to talk about how digital can support programs. Um, you know, it's this, it's the kind of adage that, you know, nobody gets fired for doing the same thing that they've always done in the past. But trying something new, trying something different is risky for many large organizations who are used to doing things a certain way. And the international development sector is is certainly one of those. And so, you know, there, there, there was a lot of challenge and a lot of kind of disheartened disheartening feeling when you know you you work with a partner to co-design what you think is a really exciting program that marries uh, traditional uh, engagement methodologies face to face etc with digital and only then to be only then for the funder or the partner to say oh no no we we need to cut your 
technology budget. We need to cut the digital budget because there isn't enough room for our traditional mm. work. And then the digital budget gets mm. squeezed to the point where actually you can't deliver anything of, of, of substance um, or value. And, uh, and that was something we certainly were seeing and experiencing, you know, four or five years ago. What has been really interesting now is, you know, uh, is that there is, in, there is now an increasing desire to see uh, technology, to see innovation um, in, the, in the proposals. Um, and and, uh, and I'm, I'm just very hopeful that with increased education and thought leadership, um, and, uh, and, and, and promotion of kind of the impact that digital can have, that that will, that will, that shift will take place. But when you're, you know, but four or five years ago, it, it, you know, you, you feel like you're, you, we felt like we were bashing our heads against the wall where the, the answer was so clear to us, right? You know, digital provides yeah. digital safe spaces it, it, for, for complicated um, uh, conversations and it offers privacy. Digital also provided the opportunity to scale more efficiently, to localize and to uh, expand programs cost efficiently to other countries or locations. Gave you the opportunity to reach millions of people. You know, it gave you the opportunity to provide an always on. So, you know, if people went into an online classroom setting, that they would still have all of their uh, the, the materials available to them. Uh, on their device that they could access whenever they wanted. And knowing all of these things and also that digital allowed um, for measurement, you know, you can see what are people reading, how much time are they spending, what are they asking about, you know, um, and, and you can also track where are people falling off in the process. There is a real opportunity for real-time monitoring and real-time improvement of, of, of long programs where traditionally in the international development space, you get funding for a program for two to three years, and at the end of that two to three years, you evaluate the program um, and then you find, you see, did it work well, did it not? Whereas digital provides you the opportunity to do that kind of analysis much more quickly and you can change the course of your program and adjust what you're doing so that you're not spending two to three years before you find out whether something's working or not. And so we, we knew all of these nice. things, you know, even four or five years ago, but it was very disheartening to see that the mindset of the industry and the budgets of the industry hadn't quite caught up to the opportunity that digital presented. Yeah, and that's a that's a great summary of of the opportunity that exists and the 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 in some places tapped and in other places untapped potential that that digital provides. I, I really like the the comment you made earlier, so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna repeat it, uh, which is that no one gets fired for doing what they've always done. I feel like it really drives home the fact that this is experimental you know like we're we're doing things we're trying out workflows and tools that have never been tried before and uh, and when we and when anyone does something so new you would expect it to fail a couple times until we we get it exactly. right uh, and so on the one hand the the day-to-day -day, there's always some discouraging thing some project that peters out um, but in in the longer run there's that there's that that future <laughs> or that that potential that that vision of the future um which we're we're trying to muddle our way towards um and that's i guess that's what makes it worthwhile that's why we stick with it exactly <laughs> so thanks for uh, this whole this whole journey um that uh, you've walked us through um with you with you and everyone mobile tell me Sarai, what what happens next with you uh, well, good timing for the question because I am I've, I'm just at the end of my tenure with Everyone Mobile after seven really fun and exciting, challenging, um, growth-inspiring years, and I am on to my next adventure uh, starting uh, in a few weeks' time. 
where I'll be joining um, a really fun, exciting, invigorating, energized organization that that uses games and innovation, uh, games and animation, to move people um, to drive a change of behavior um, and. They do a lot of work around financial education, STEM, working with corporates, very interested in helping to bridge uh, the digital gap um, and use uh, use digital and, um, and, and, and animation and games particularly to really help people um, with, with their lives. And it, it's an exciting space. It's a small company. Um, I think there's a lot of growth opportunity and potential for this organization and for me specifically within the organization. So that that is what I am uh, looking forward to, working with a, with, a, <laughs> with a bunch of very creative, very interesting people um, whose organization is on a on a growth path. Fascinating to hear, and I think it's it reflects how you know when we talk about technology poverty, technology and poverty and social change uh, that can that can happen in many different angles. It sounds like you're moving from an organization that's more focused on on business and supply chain and private sector partnerships towards one that's focused on on behavior change and and media and and youth engagement and engagement, I guess, across a variety of platforms. Uh, hopefully, we'll get the chance to talk about that again <laughs> once you've found your feet in in the new organization because it also sounds very relevant to to the kind of things that we're talking about here. Do you have any advice for young professionals, you know, other people out there in the world who are thinking of doing good with technology, reflecting on an experience that you have? Um, Do you have any advice that you'd like to share for people who might be listening to this podcast? Don't be afraid to work hard (laughs) and don't be afraid to share your opinion and thoughts. You know, it, I think a common mistake that people make in their earlier days is is to feel like they have to go with the consensus of the organization and saying yes to the big boss. But actually, people will have a lot of respect for individuals who challenge the status quo, who present arguments around why things should be done differently or why things should be thought of differently or approached differently. There's a, there's a lot of respect to be earned by marching to your own beat, but doing it in a way that is respectful and bringing other people along the journey with you. So I would say while you are young and developing your career, if you have your own ideas and your own thoughts, don't squash them because you think that's the way to, to do well at work. Um, it's about doing the right thing all the time. And, um, and if you see that the organization is doing something that you think is not right, either right for the organization or right for the client or right for the end user, then it's actually your responsibility to speak up and make sure that the right thing always happens as hard as it might be. I think there's also something about the fact that working in the space of technology and and innovation, uh, you know, you hope the kind of work we do is it's about challenging the status quo it's about it's about questioning those those pieces and and young people play have played a huge role throughout history and in, in upsetting that status quo for the better in this sector in particular it's it's important for us to be asking those questions about how can we do better than maybe we're used to doing or or comfortable doing so thank you for that Saraya for the last uh, segment of our podcast we're just going to run through a few rapid fire questions yeah that's it let's dive in the first question I have for you, Soraya, is if you have any requests for donors or policymakers out there. Yeah, I would request donors to be more open-minded about who they fund and what they fund and why they fund it. Interesting. Do tell. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a loaded answer. Yeah. Well, well, there are a lot of organizations that typically receive funding 
um, from the big donors and they are well known. You know, they're the top 10 to 15 implementing partners um, and they often will get priority funding, uh, you know, just because they're well known, because they're they're stable organizations. And it's and, and I think being for donors to be open minded about innovations in 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 programs, about new partners, about new technologies, I think is I think would be would would be superb. I think the other the other thing as well for donors is that there's a lot of rhetoric around um, public private partnerships and the mm. interest and desire to bring private sector organizations to the table, um, you know, which aligns again to the topic of conversation we, we had earlier about profit with purpose and uh, corporates getting involved in, in impact. And there's a lot of rhetoric around it, but not so much action. Um, and I think mm. there's, a, there's an opportunity for donors to really push that, 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 that forward. Um, and and I think lastly, is I would really be interested in donors really truly understanding what digital means and not just reducing it to its lowest common denominator, which is SMSs, for example. But that there is a whole opportunity that digital affords um, programs to allow programs to be run more efficiently. Um, so that's what I would request from from donors. Absolutely, well put. Next question is if there's a, a project gotcha, you know, like in the projects and the partnerships that you've established, um, is there a common mistake uh, that you see and maybe by p- folks who have not done many partnerships or projects before that you would highlight for future implementers? Mm, and I think it goes back to the, the conversation we had earlier as well, where really putting the consumer or the customer beneficiary at the heart of what you're doing is really important. Mm. Um, and I think it is a common mistake that people make where they sit in a dark room somewhere, design a program, and then impose it, as opposed to co-creating it with the target end users and validating and iterating. You know, fail fast, I think, is important. So iterate, 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 take user input and feedback um, and design with your end users together. And I, and I think that is that is something that would set programs up much better. Agreed. Is there a trend in this industry that that you're looking forward to, or that you'd watch out for? And then, how do you think things might be different in in five or ten years? Yeah, I'm like I'm really I'm really looking forward to uh, public private partnerships coming to the fore in in much more significant ways. I'm um, I'm finding it really interesting that a lot of a lot of the big uh, private sector companies have foundations. Um, you know, many of them do, but you have um, organizations like Unilever that have done away with the foundation side have done away with the CSR side and have really brought impact into the uh, core of the business. And I'm really interested to see how that that space is going to play out. Yeah, I'd love to see how those those structures evolve over the years. Would you like to give a, a kudos to another mover or shaker in this field or a shout out? The, uh, there is somebody in particular um, that comes to mind and it's a, is a chap named Mark Skoman who works for a very interesting firm Uh, that's based in South Africa called Genesis Analytics. And uh, Mark and Genesis's work um, is very much, I mean, they do do some very, very interesting things. But one of the areas that they're looking at now is uh, working with government, um, including South Africa and and other countries, to think about um, digital skills and, uh, and employment opportunities in digital. Uh, because you know, with emerging markets and particularly now with COVID, the impact on unemployment has been 
significant. The need for people to retrain is significant. And where are the jobs going to be coming from? Um, and you know, and what jobs can be created in the future on this continent? And much of the answer lies in the digital space. So I think that is that um, is a really interesting area to be to be to be looking into digital skills development digital skills uh, capacity building you know roles in cloud computing for example um, I, you know and and the work that genesis and mark is doing in this space advising government on uh, job creation in the hundreds of thousands i think is a very very exciting space wow i'll have to i'll have to look them up Last question for you is if you have any uh, recommended reading, you know, a book, a blog, a podcast, either related to your work or just from personal interest. Well, I'll tell you what three books I have um, on my bedside table at the moment. So uh, one is uh, Sapiens, which I think is really interesting. Great book. Exactly. So you you know, I really, I'm halfway through and I think it's really fascinating. How I describe that book is like most of the good books I read uh, will take an idea that's in my head and articulate it in some beautiful way. With Sapiens, uh, I think it's the first book I've read in a long time that had radically new ideas. Like I've just never thought about society in that way before. Um, And I really enjoyed some of the ideas that it introduced me to. Exactly. And the writing style is very, very palatable. It's really, he's he's, he's made a difficult subject really quite accessible. Um, And and I think that's that's really fantastic. So Sapiens would be one. Um, The second is a book called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And again, this is like rooted in in, uh, Stoic philosophy, but it's a really inspiring book that helps you to see challenges as opportunities. So that's uh, the second book. And the third one um, is uh, is one of my favorite poets, Khalil Gibran and his book, um, The Prophet, which, you know, covers all sorts of different elements of life from uh, uh, joy and sorrow to death to marriage love uh, children giving um, etc and um, a very easy read but a very very powerful um, language in the book well that's that's a great lineup Soraya that'll keep me busy for a while <laughs> thank you so much for those recommendations and for taking the time to talk today I mean you know we've, we've known each other for a little bit but I feel like even I learned a lot uh, from from this conversation and from your journey. So I appreciate you you taking the time to share that. Thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on your fabulous podcast. Um, you know, I, I wish you all the very best and also hope that your audience um, appreciates and enjoys um, the programs that you're putting together. <laughs> we'll see. If you've made it this far in the episode, I just wanted to let you know that if you'd like to hear more about the organizations, the people, or the books that Sarai mentioned, you can access the show notes on our website at aidevolved.com. This is also where you can go in order to get updates on future episodes or to get in touch with me. Please feel free to send me any of your suggestions about this episode, about future guests you'd like to see, or topics you'd like us to address. I'd love to hear from you, and I'll respond to every email that I receive. Thanks for listening. Take care. See you next time.